We're about five weeks out from heading to the ballot box in Ontario. Between now and June 2nd, the candidates will be trudging the sidewalks, knocking on doors, or at least as much as they can in this sixth wave of the pandemic. Will the province have new leadership? on June 3rd. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. The last time Ontario went to the polls, the governing Liberals were reduced to a rump party of just seven seats. The NDP made gains and became the official opposition. Midway through the PC's mandate, the pandemic arrived, turning everything upside down. Now, as we grapple with the sixth wave, while politicians try to turn the page on COVID, Russia has invaded Ukraine. The price price of a home in Canada is the highest it's ever been. Our unpublished.vote question asks you, if the election was held tomorrow, who would you vote for? The PCs, Liberal, NDP, or Green? You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. Joining us later in the show, Lori Turnbull from Dalhousie University, as well as Tim Abray from Queens. But first, I'm pleased to be joined by Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. And Daryl, you know, back in March, you wrote that this election is the PCs to lose. A month later, the race is tightening up a bit. Are the PCs losing or are the Liberals gaining? No, I think what's happening right now is public anxiety over the issues facing them as we come out of this pandemic is the thing that's winning. And uh, what you're seeing, I think, is a difficulty in terms of being able to make a choice about what the future is going to be based on the newness of this anxiety. In, in terms of the, the newness that, that you talk about, is that us coming out of COVID and learning to, to you know, live with it, I guess? Yeah, it's exactly that. So when we uh, we were asking questions like this, not necessarily on politics, but you know, politics played a role. Mm-hmm. We're certainly asking them about the federal election or uh, you know, a similar type of recovery period. Um, and uh, when we were coming out last time, people were, to a certain extent, hopeful. Uh, they were thinking that we, uh, you know, science had triumphed, whatever the this pandemic was. That vaccines were the solution. We were going to get back on track, and they were looking forward to uh, moving on to a new phase of their lives. But this time around, we're not seeing that at all. Uh, since the Omicron variant kicked in uh, in the fall of this year, uh, what we've seen is people uh, very concerned about our ability to control this issue or control this disease. So it is becoming, as you described it, something we're having to learn to live with, becoming more endemic. Uh, and the second thing, though, is that they're now dealing with the, con- the economic consequences of what this pandemic has wrought. And that is, uh, you know, inflation up at a higher level than they've, they've experienced it before um, in, in quite a long time, actually, and uh, a cost of living issue. So what real people call inflation is cost of living. And even if they aren't necessarily at this moment feeling any specific changes need to be made in their lives in order to deal with this situation, although some people do feel that, the anticipation that things are going to get worse has made this, uh, this, uh, this public opinion environment quite brittle and fragile. Uh, and I think what we're seeing in the political polling, where you're seeing the Liberals and the NDP moving up a little bit and the Conservatives moving down a little bit, is more of a reflection of that than it is an actual evaluation of the performance of the government. I thought, you know, usually when an election starts or it comes into the horizon for, for voters, they start paying a bit more attention. Do you think that's where, you know, people are starting to pick their sides uh, in, in terms of who they'd like to see run the province come, come June 3rd? Well, I think that's exactly the point. I, I don't think people are there yet. I don't think that mm-hmm. there's a, an understanding that there's an election com- campaign going on more broadly known among the Ontario population. So this is a fairly elite conversation at the moment. But uh, I think when we uh, the campaign actually does kick in and people aren't just talking about whether or not things are going in the right direction, 
uh, about whether or not the, uh, you know, they're going to be choosing one party or another party in order to leave them uh, into the future is when I think you're going to start to see these numbers move more and stabilize. All right, let, let's focus a little bit. Stephen Del Duca is fairly un, unknown to a lot of voters, considering he's been out of politics for a while. How how do you see that holding back the Liberals in this election, or will it? Well, it hasn't held them back so far. He's certainly doing better than Kathleen Wynne did uh, going into the last election campaign. So uh, low profile isn't necessarily hurting him at the moment. So this is mainly the liberal brand, I would say. But also, uh, you know, this, as I said before, discomfort and people working through the idea of whether or not that we need to change before the next election campaign. And, and if we're going to make a change, who's the best change? But, uh, you know, every everything that makes you strong uh, makes you weak in this game. And the strength that he has of people not knowing enough about him to have any problems with him at the at the at the at the present time uh, is also a weakness, and that they don't know enough about him to really feel positively about him either. So he's going to be vigorously trying to fill in his blank resume for the public. Uh, and you know, people will say he's been around politics for a long time. People don't uh, voters don't know that. So both the conservatives, well, actually the conservatives, the NDP, and the Liberal Party are all going to be trying to define Stephen Del Duca between now and Election Day in June. Andrea Horvath, uh, Horvath has had four years to make some inroads, but hasn't. Her, you know, obviously they 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 gained in the last election because of uh, the liberal collapse, but you know, unless she makes some major major gains, is this her last election? Well, it remains to be seen. I mean, there's an election to go through, so we'll see how she performs in this election. I mean, if she surprises and ends up being the, the premier after this, uh, uh, you know, on June the 3rd, then uh, obviously it's not going to be her last election. But I think it's all against expectations. If she comes in third behind a leader that's a, a rookie in terms of Ontario uh, leadership, uh, Stephen Del Duca, and uh, the position of being the progressive champion that she was in the last election campaign, uh, that, that baton is taken away by, uh, uh, by the Liberal Party, then uh, it would be strange if there weren't questions asked about the leadership of, uh, of, of the uh, provincial NDP and whether or not uh, Andrea Horvath uh, should be looking at doing something else. Because at some point, you know, even, even if you're a socialist, you have to pay attention to market signals. And, uh, you know, you've been to the bat four or five times and haven't been able to win, uh, you know, unless you're not interested in winning, um, you really would have to ask questions about her ongoing leadership. Obviously, cost of living, inflation, top of mind with uh, Canadians and Ontarians. And how do you expect to see the parties try and reach those people? I'm just going to challenge that assumption just just for okay. a second, even though I said it, and I'm, I'm not challenging you, Ed, I'm challenging myself. Um, uh, it's not just inflation. Uh, the big marker issue in all of this is the cost of housing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the issue of housing isn't about whether inflation is going up or going down. It's about access. And what's really changed over the space of the last two years is that it's no longer a conversation that is lifting it in the polls about uh, dealing with homelessness or dealing with uh, low in, you know, uh, low cost rental housing for lower, lower income families. It's expanded greatly to include the aspirational middle class who feels that they're being locked out of the real estate market, especially in the most desirable markets in the province. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is, yes, it's related to cost, but really what it's about is about the, the, uh, the disappointment 
uh, to middle-class aspirations. The idea that you will some point be able to afford your patch of land with your house, with your driveway, with your backyard, the place that you're going to raise your family, that that is going to be denied you is a really bitter pill to swallow for Ontarians' aspirational middle class. And that's what the issue is. So it's not just about the cost of living. It's not something that's just going to go up and go down a little bit. This is about something that's been on a trajectory uh, to move into the stratosphere in which people are just not able to keep up. So it's the denial of housing. And in fact, what we're finding in our polling right now is that it's not cost of living that's the number one issue. It's housing, which I've never seen before. And I've been doing this since the late 80s. Are there any issues that are maybe under the surface that could come up and, and, and change the course of an election? But this election? We, have, we haven't seen one yet, but uh, to the extent that um, some of the more symbolic type issues can emerge. So, for example, in the last election campaign, we saw it was the cost of electricity. Potentially, the cost of living around things like gasoline. Uh, in doing something for the commuting middle class. I mean, one of the things that uh, uh, is is a, a truism in Ontario is that 90% of the population growth in this province over the space of the last 20 years has been in car commuting communities. And these are commuters who are now, for the first time, starting to consider going back to the office, going back to workplaces um, where they have to drive and they're going in and they're making that first fill up that they recognize from when they used to drive downtown before to go to the office, whether it's in Ottawa or London or Kitchener, Waterloo or Toronto or any of the you know, medium sized cities uh, in, uh, in, in the province. And they're, and they're looking at a gas bill that's much higher than the one that they re remember before. That could be potentially a, a sleeper issue because we know that car commuting suburbanites are the ones who decide who wins elections now. Because all elections in Ontario, Ed, are really simple to understand. There's three groups of voters. There's downtown voters, there's suburban voters, and there's rural, smaller town voters. When suburban voters side with rural and small town voters, the conservatives win. When um, the uh, suburban voters decide to side with downtown voters, either the liberals or the NDP win. So the question is, where is the suburbs going to go this time? Because we know small town rural is Tory. Mm -hmm. We know downtown is liberal slash NDP. So where are those suburbanites who tend to switch back and forth? Where are they going to go? Cost of power, cost of gasoline, commuter costs, all those things are going to be issues for this specific group of voters. That's one of the reasons I suspect why we saw Doug Ford remove the price on license fees and start refunding people you know, the, the money that they spent on stickers for, for their license stickers. Why? Car commuting suburbanites. They decide the election. Daryl, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Daryl Brickers, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. While the writ has yet to drop, unofficial campaigning has been underway for weeks. Lori Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Policy at Dalhousie University, and she joins us now. And, and, and Lori, the PCs have the lead now, but it has been softening a bit. Does the possibility of the Liberals and NDP working together, much we, like we saw federally, give the PCs the ability to frame the campaign as it's us against them in, in their search for a majority? Yeah, you know, like there's always that possibility, right, that Ford is going to sort of hold it in the air that the Liberals and the NDP plan to, you know, work together to defeat a duly elected government sort of thing. Like I can imagine him channeling the energy of Stephen Harper in 2008 when, you know, Harper was about to lose power. He knew it. And so he ended up saying, look, you know, if 
the liberals and the NDP joined to defeat him, that's that's not legitimate. Right? Like that's if they're going to do that, they should have said that during the campaign. So I think Ford would probably try, like in the event that he, it's looking like his numbers are closer to a minority than a majority, he might try to sort of push this narrative during the campaign that the liberals and the NDP actually, you know, there's not much difference between them. And they plan to uh, overtake a government that, you know, that, that, that is, would be continued sort of thing, even in a minority context. And I think that he'd probably try to get to voters who are, you know, put liberal who put, would, would put the NDP, the NDP third, not second, you know, liberal voters who, who don't want to see an alliance with the NDP and vice versa. And so there's a possibility that he'll, he'll go down that road. Do the PCs have an Achilles heel heading into this campaign? Do the conservatives have an Achilles yeah. heel? Wow. I mean, I think there are possibly several. You know? mm-hmm. Like, I think um, ultimately the election is going to be in some ways a referendum on Doug Ford's handling of COVID-19, where, you know, he, he had had quite a few decisions in the first part of his tenure, including uh, the decision around municipal, like changing municipal ridings and things during an election like that, that those sorts of decisions, I think were very controversial at the time, but now everybody forgets that stuff because COVID, right. And so that's become the big issue. And so I think he's in some ways he's like, there were times during COVID where he actually did really well. We saw his popularity go up. He was, you know, he seen, was seen to be getting along well with the federal government, making good decisions, things like that. But then after a while, um, as we saw lockdowns sort of on and off and decisions being made about, um, you know, how to, ha- how to handle all of that, he's been criticized more, you know, in sort of the back half of it. And so I think going into it, people are going to be thinking about who, you know, how Doug Ford did, who they want to trust going forward, that sort of thing. I mean, if there's an Achilles heel for him, I think there are issues around um, something like long-term care, right? Like which was exposed oh, yeah. as a major problem, you know, and the, the the quality of that, the state of that in Ontario was a major issue. But at the same time, he can sort of punt that and say, well, you know, the liberals didn't do anything about it. And we, we inherited this mess, things like that. Um, I think the other thing too, is that he can play up his relationship with the federal government, I think is being a relatively strong one in some cases, right? He's gotten along really well with Christian Freeland. I think, uh, you know, he's, he can hold up the childcare agreement and say, you know, we're able to get things done for you, Ontario. And so give us back. Right. But I think things like long-term care, things like, um, escalations and rates of COVID-19 in Ontario, I think, um, the handling of the education, side of COVID-19 and students being able to get to school. And like, I think those sorts of things are going to come back to, to haunt him on the campaign trail. Strategic voting. Uh, do you expect we're going to see some of that in this election? We always hear about it when it comes to an election, but do you expect we'll, we'll see something like this or, and what kind of an impact on the results if we did? Oh, like Canadians are strategic voters. Absolutely. And our electoral system is about, you know, rewarding the person who comes first and the rest of the result doesn't really matter. And so I think, you know, part of, I think like Doug Ford is in a position where I think if anything, he will benefit from the electoral system and the, the way it shakes down where that you get the possibility for split is on the NDP and the liberal side. 
especially given that there's even at this point, the campaign hasn't even kicked off in earnest. There's quite a bit of overlap between the, what they've been saying, right? Like, and, and there's um, like, that's why people are thinking that the, the, the possibility of a, of overthrowing a Ford minority is possible, right? Because the parties have so much in common. And now the Liberals and the NDP on the federal side have set this example of how they can not form a coalition, but can work together in a way that, you know, kind of keeps their government going. And so I think that's going to be where the, the Liberals and the NDP start to push. You know, don't vote, don't waste your vote on the others. Vote for us. But either of them could say that, right? Like in mm-hmm. some ways, uh, you know, some, sometimes we, we think about it at the federal level as a wasted vote on the NDP because they're not likely to win. They're not going to be a first place party and usually not a second place party. But I think that's that's kind of up for grabs in Ontario. And so we could run the risk of a lot of vote splitting on the left, the center left, because the two like there's no, I don't think there's a clear sense that one is so much farther ahead than the other. Although I realize, you know, polls polls will say what they say, but it's early days. You know, we, we have more advanced uh, voting coming up in this election. And who does that benefit? Which party does that benefit and why? I mean, like some, there's some evidence to suggest that advanced polling and more engagement with that has some benefit to the status quo, to the, the incumbent. But the, I think it can go the other way, too, in the sense that people who are really fed up and who know they're going to vote against the government, if this is a change election for them or if this is you know something that they know, they you know, anybody but Ford sort of thing, then you're you're more likely to show up and, and you know, get this get this done. The other thing is to think about it. It's possible that voting in advance polls is more appealing to some demographics. So, so for instance, like if you're somebody who is. Um, a decided liberal voter or a conservative voter, you've been your whole life. This is not going to, this campaign doesn't really matter to you, but you're definitely going to vote. Then you're going to go and register that vote earlier to just avoid the lines and get it over with. And so it's possible that it's, there's not necessarily a huge advantage for any party. Like it's sort of, it depends right on who shows up, Mm -hmm. but, but we know that campaigns are important. Right. And let people there's a lot of people who will make up their mind like the weekend before the election. And so they won't vote in the event. poll. They'll wait to hear the whole thing. Where do you see Ontario? What region do you see uh, Ontario being decided in this election? I mean, I, I don't know, because I think it could, like it could be very close. Some people are saying that Ford will do better than expected. And that's possible. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a progressive conservative plurality, whether it's a majority or not. I'm not sure. So it's possible that this is really going to come down to the wire, right? Where there's no there's no specifically decided, you know, region that kind of takes it. There's, I think it's kind of, it's going to be more close than that. Laurie, I want to thank you for joining us. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Laurie Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Policy at Dalhousie University. Now, this is a different PC party than the one that won in 2018. That means new faces on the campaign trail. Tim Abrey is a teaching fellow and PhD candidate at Queen's University, and he joins us now. And, and Tim, Christine Elliott, Rod Phillips won't be running. There's going to be about new fa- 20 new faces for the PCs on the campaign trail. Will that help or hinder the party? 
I, I'm going to give you the terrible fence-sitting answer, which is both. Uh, it really depends, right? Uh, campaigns are two things. They are a broad, across-the-board effort, so a broad provincial effort led by a leader, led by an air campaign, as it's often referred to, which means just lots of advertising, general messaging, uh, key themes to the campaign. But anybody who's done campaigning knows that the second campaign is often the most critical one, and that's the one on the ground in individual ridings. And uh, in individual ridings, I think in some ways this is probably going to uh, both hurt and harm this government. Uh, you've got a fair number of people with very high profile names, long established community reputations who are no longer running this time. Uh, and that creates a bit of a challenge for the people who are going to follow them um, to try and live up to those sorts of uh, the name recognition, the track record, the familiarity. It does tend to create openings uh, for people who are going to challenge for those seats. So the opposition parties tend to have a much easier time running against new candidates. Uh, even though the riding might be held by the PCs, uh, it may be a little more difficult for them to hold it uh, with an unknown quantity running in place of someone who's a name brand. And now, some of those who, who aren't running uh, for the PCs this time around because of, well, missteps, I think of Rod Phillips specifically, but uh, whether it be coming out against uh, con the, the government or, or whatever, uh, how do the opposition parties make hay with those candidates? Usually just by doing exactly what you just alluded to, which is uh, reminding people constantly of the things that might have led to them deciding not to run again. So reminding people of the missteps, reminding people of the uh, of them stepping in it regularly throughout the term. And that's that is always the way with opposition parties when they're attempting to uh, replace an incumbent government, uh, particularly when we've seen polls being relatively consistent over the last few years. I mean, there have been dips for the Ford government. Um, but they have led most of the time uh, over the last four years. And um, it, it, the opposition parties need to remind people of why the government needs to be replaced if they have any hope of actually having their candidates replace uh, either incumbents or um, their replacements in established PC ridings. You know, the NDP did gain in the last election and, uh, well, pretty well decimated the, the Liberals. They were the official opposition, but they really haven't seen much growth. Uh, I, I wonder, uh, will the NDP be looking for a new leader after this election if, if Andrea Horvath does not win? Yeah, it's the eternal question in Ontario politics. Uh, I've been around it and watching it for well over, oh my goodness, now 30 years now. Uh, and the NDP is an interesting bird. It uh, tends to approach its leadership position in a way that the other parties do not. They have a lot more patience with their leaders. They tend to give them more time to develop a reputation, to develop some level of recognition, to establish a culture within the party. Uh, part of that comes from the culture of the party itself. They tend to look at themselves as more of a whole team effort, less of a uh, less established on the name brand or uh, enthusiasm of about a particular individual. Um, and so I think, though, that Horvath has been around a very long time, uh, even by NDP standards, uh, and an inability to move the needle 
uh, from election to election, particularly when there are so many contentious issues uh, on the horizon, is a big red flag for any party, no matter how faithful you are. And so I think that she is going to have to be able to point to some significant gains in this election campaign uh, if she is going to have any hope of hanging on to it or any, quite frankly, any desire to hold on to it. I think we often overlook that too, is that uh, NDP leaders are often given the time and space to succeed. And if they don't, they often remove themselves just simply out of a sense of I've done my time, I've done, done my best effort it has not succeeded it's time to make way for somebody else and i wouldn't be surprised to see that if that's what happens this time now uh, awareness in terms for stephen del duca as, as liberal leader he has no seat and doesn't have a strong profile he has been out of politics for a while how are the liberals going to turn that around well, they're going to have to stick him out front and center far more often, and he's going to have to figure out a way to connect with people on a much more personal basis. Uh, Stephen Del Duca is, is very much a, a, an unknown quantity across Ontario. Uh, very few people can even remember to pronounce his name properly or spell it correctly, even if they do remember it. Uh, and the vast majority of people, if they're pressed, could not tell you who the current leader of the Liberal Party is. That <clears throat> that in and of itself is not all that unusual. Uh, there are lots of instances of people who have entered election campaigns as virtual unknowns and come out you know, pretty well. Uh, there's a guy named Mike Harris who entered uh, a campaign, you know, 27 years ago with, I think it was about 11% recognition among voters uh, and, ended up, and ended up forming a majority government. So a lack of recognition in and of itself is not a problem, but I think times have changed considerably since 1995, uh, stating the obvious. But mm -hmm. I think that the with things like social media and the constant attention that social issues can have, for example, COVID-19 uh, has, has dominated social media for the last couple of years, understandably, and it has driven a lot of the political conversation. And I think that if you cannot make a name for yourself in that environment, if you cannot drive up your recognition, if you cannot get people's attention and engage in those conversations, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I think that that's where the Conservatives have a significant edge over the opposition parties, is that while they may complain a lot about coverage in mainstream media and write off the importance of social media, particularly when it comes to their detractors, they are certainly strong users of it to push their own message and to get a clear brand associated with Doug Ford particularly, but the government of, uh, as a whole. Uh, they've done very well at, at sending their own message through social media and maintaining it over these four years. And I think the opposition parties need to do a much, much, much better job of that if they're, they're in, intended to succeed in this election. And I wanted to get the messaging because the PCs are, are extremely tightly controlled. You know, last election, no media traveled with them at all. Uh, do the Liberals and the NDP consider the same tack, maybe less of the mainstream media, and we'll just use the social media to get our message out? Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think there are two categories for me. So the Conservatives have been like this for a long, 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 long time. Um, going on 30 years, there has been uh, at least a... Um, 
at least a slight distrust of the mainstream media, which has grown to an absolute roar in the last decade or so, um, they have always attempted to reach out to people through less conventional methods, through much more direct methods. Uh, conservatives tend to be far more interested in uh, the door-to-door -door approach, local associations, direct marketing approaches, uh, they have always been the masters of those categories. And I think social media just falls into that direct outreach category. Um, the mainstream media has never been particularly kind to politicians. That is fundamentally a big part of their job. Their job is to hold people to account, ask tough questions, force uh, leaders and parties to account for the decisions they've made. And I think what people should pay more attention to is that historically, the leaders that do well in answering those challenges from well-researched, well-backgrounded uh, journalists tend to also perform far better uh, on the public stage because they're confident in their answers, they're confident in their brief, and they're able to represent themselves well. A good example of that in my mind would be someone like Bob Ray, who got a heck of a rough ride uh, as Premier of Ontario years ago in an incredibly tough moment uh, in the province's economic history. But, you know, love him or hate him, people at least acknowledged that the man understood his job and understood his brief and was more than happy to demonstrate that on the public stage on a regular basis. He would happily take on anybody, answer their questions and answer it with incisive uh, material, you know, that he, he knew his brief and could answer people quite substantively. And I think a lot of that has been lost, to be honest, in the last good 10 to 15 years, because people have been relying heavily on personal brand marketing. You know, I'm a good guy, vote for me, I'll do good things while I'm in office. Doug Ford is kind of the epitome of that. I mean, he ran uh, in the last election in 2018 with what amounted to almost no platform whatsoever. Uh, and one, uh, basically saying, I'm a good guy, I'll do good things, trust me, here's a few beers, it'll be fine, uh, and managed to pull it out. Um, you know, that was a change election, there was a lot of discontent in the province at the time, uh, but nonetheless, he managed to do it on that formula. And I think, unfortunately, that model still reigns that people are paying attention mostly to gut level impulses. People are incredibly busy and stressed right now and are having a tough time paying attention to the issues substantively. And so trust is going to play a huge role in this. Comfort is going to play a huge role in this. And I think the opposition leaders really need to get their game up on all levels in the media, mainstream media, social media, uh, if they're going to have any hope of breakthrough. Um, they're going to need to be respected more than just liked. I think if they, they can drive that respect meter up higher, they're going to have a much better chance uh, of appealing to voters uh, and starting to get the conversation moving in a direction that's helpful to them. Tim, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. Tim Abray is a teaching fellow and PhD candidate at Queen's University. Our unpublished.vote question asks you, if the election was held tomorrow, who would you vote for? The PCs, Liberals, NDP, or Green Party? Log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guests today on the Unpublished Cafe, Daryl Bricker of Ipsos Public Affairs, Lori Turnbull of Dalhousie University, and Tim Abray from Queen's. And I want to thank you for watching the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.